Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something. Um, since the lovely Joanne moved out here, I, I gave her my parking spot. So I'm not used to parking on the street, and it's getting hotter. And I parked on the street the other day. And then I had to run and get some uh, corn and some beer for a barbecue. And my car got so hot, I couldn't believe it. I actually had to put on winter gloves I had in my trunk and drive because it was so hot. So I really have to buy one of those, uh, whatever they're called, those... Uh, Visors because I've never used one of them. I've always hated them. They look like they're a pain to put on. It's like you get in, you got to pull it all out, stick it up, and then you sit there and you get to pull it all off. And it's just, I don't have the patience for that. But I decided either I'm going to do that or I'm going to have really, really hot hands. So anyway, we have a great show today. We have a a very a great a, I guess a great journalist, reporter, uh, interviewer, all uh, that. Right? Objection to the term great, but I'll take it. Thank That's, you. Thank you. Uh, and let me just say, by the way, the visor which I had. Here in Los Angeles for a number of years um, is a great thing, and it and it it's a it's a pain to keep in your back seat and unfold, but it makes a big difference. Did you have one of the cardboard ones or those ones that spin around those silver ones that you can like? There's these no, ones. No, I now. had I had one of the cardboard okay. ones that sort of folds up like a like a gas station map. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my guest is Josh Michaels. And by the way, if you're only as hip as your guests, you're in real trouble today. <laughs> you know, it's funny people say it a lot, and but you guys always had the good stories. So I'm, I'm I always stand right. there and go, you know. But no, because me and Josh were talking, because you know, as I said, people, when you go to Wikipedia and you do a little research, sometimes things are askew. But you were born in Berkeley. I was born in Berkeley, and I lived um, uh, here in Los Angeles till I was about six years old. Then I lived in South America for a couple of years because my father was in the Peace Corps then. Now, what made him join? I mean, because your your father was a uh, was a press secretary, right? Well, my dad not then he wasn't. My dad grew up in Los Angeles in a uh, in a Hollywood family. Um, his dad was a screenwriter, wrote uh, Citizen Kane, among other things. And his uncle, my uncle Joe, was a director and uh, and writer and producer. Uh, um, Guys and Dolls, All About Eve, uh, Letter to Three Wives, a lot of different, a lot of different movies, um, and my dad went to law school um, after he uh, got out of World War II, and I think um, settled into a practice here in Beverly Hills. He had he had two big clients. One of them was James Mason, the actor. Okay. Um, about which more later. Um, and the other um, was Jay Silverheels, who played Tonto. Um, so when my dad was representing these two guys, I remember Tonto coming over to our house once, uh, and he came right from the set. And he was in makeup, and he was wearing that jacket that had the fringe on it. To say that I was transfixed, is I literally was like, I remember being frozen. Looking at him, and he was like, "He's like, hi, how are you? What's your name? Nice to meet you. Do you like the show?" And I like could not get a word out of my mouth because like Tonto was in the living room. That's so, especially the best is because he's in the makeup in yeah. the costume. Yeah. So you're like, "Oh my god!" You're thinking, "Yeah, he's really Tonto. He's, he's not go, an actor. He's going to go outside and get on the horse. Yeah, <laughs> get on Scout. Yeah." So, uh, you know, I, I think uh, my dad realized, um, as a lot of people did, this being 1961 that he could probably make a pretty good living um, being an entertainment attorney in Los Angeles. But that it would ultimately leave him feeling kind of uh, like he hadn't done a lot with his life. So he wrote a letter to President Kennedy um, and basically applied for a job. And they, they wrote him back a couple of months later and 
offered him three jobs, and, and, and the story would be better if I could remember all of them. Uh, one of them was at the Defense Department with McNamara. The other one, I can't remember what it was. And then the third was the Peace Corps, which was just starting with Sergeant Shriver. So he thought the Peace Corps would be fascinating. Now, he already spoke Spanish. He had learned it in the Army uh, during World War II. And um, and so the, the, he was fluent in Spanish, and that made that made taking the Peru job much much, much easier. He was sent to be country director uh, for the Peace Corps in Peru, which was the first first class of Peace Corps volunteers. And you know, it, it, it was a profoundly life changing experience for my dad, and uh, I would say for me as you, well. How old were you when you moved to Peru? I was seven. The first time I ever saw homeless people. I mean, it must be completely crazy. And you're actually oh, submerged yeah. into a different oh, culture. Yeah. First time I saw homeless people. First time I saw a slum. Um, no, no, it was, uh, it was, uh, first of all, I lived in a country that didn't know the meaning of, uh, you know, pesticides. It was, uh, it was quite a, uh, it was quite a place back in the early sixties. So you're, you're, you're growing up there and you lived there for what, a few years? I lived there for, we lived there, I think about two and a half years. Okay. And then you moved to DC then, or did you move uh, back to LA? Then we came back here to Los Angeles briefly and then we went to DC. So by the time I was about nine, 10 years old, I was in DC and I lived in DC all through high school and uh, uh, went to college in the East. And then I sort of, uh, I, I um, went into, into the news business when I was still in college. Did you always know you wanted to do the news business? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I at what age? About 10, 12, something like that. I mean, I remember, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I watched the uh, Vietnam and the Civil Rights Movement kind of unfold in front of me every night. My parents watched the evening news uh uh, Cronkite or Huntley Brinkley religiously, um, and uh, you know there was no uh, there was I, I literally like, I don't think there was a night where we didn't sit down, have dinner, watch the news, and then talk about it. You know and what? I certainly saw I saw the reporters covering stories, and I remember that I would see them a couple of days later and they'd be covering some other story, and I thought, oh, that looked kind of interesting. I'd wanted to do that for a long time. See, it's amazing is also because, you know, I'm I'm 50, and for us, we watch the news, and the news was so much more serious back then. Like, not, but, like, you watch it now, and you sit there, and, like, I was you well, watching it. you know, it. I mean, there wasn't any extra. There wasn't any insider. There wasn't any entertainment tonight. There wasn't any TMZ. Um, you know, I mean, the the, uh, the the kind of news you got was was much more serious. There were all kinds of things that sort of weren't reported on. Um, uh but the news was more serious, and people probably got a better sense of what was going on in the world then than they do now. Maybe you used to always watch and because you went to school near Philadelphia. We used to watch Action News with Larry Kane. No, always I, I watched. I watched Larry. Uh, I watched Larry Kane in uh, Philadelphia when I was. Uh, when I went to Haverford, so I watched him for four years. I also saw more Krim and Jessica Savage. Okay, um, and uh, was there during those same years, uh, and I saw the end of John Facenda and the beginning of. Uh, of uh, WCAU's uh, slide into nothingness that they finally recovered from. Uh, yeah, um, and then years later, I met Larry Kane, which was like thrilling. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I mean, everyone in Philadelphia, everyone, oh, everyone it, knew. And I heard, I heard, I don't know, I heard he was like great friends with John Lennon, or like some people said some weird stories. Like the guy was just, he was just such an icon in Philadelphia. Well, he was, and you know what was interesting was that Philadelphia, you know, has had, you know. Uh, you know, sort of stuck between you know uh, D.C. and New York, so this like inferiority complex, you know, about different things for years. But yet they generated, you know, I mean, like Dick, Dick Clark, who like owned you know that kind of broadcasting, uh, and 
And Larry, who was just like this iconic presence in Philadelphia um, uh, when I was in school and then afterwards, uh, I'm no, I wouldn't be surprised if Larry knew if Larry knew everybody. I mean, I'm, I'm calling him Larry like we're friends. Right. We're not. He probably doesn't <laughs> even remember me. But we were both working for the CBS-owned stations at the same time, and I met him, and it was a big thrill. So, so, so you're in Haverford. You're, you're, you, you know you want to get into the business. Yeah. So. And Haverford, by the way, like probably one of the worst places to go if you want to go into broadcasting. I mean, See, they had nothing like how that How did you there. choose Haverford? It's just, it seems like it's, I know Haverford. My dad had gone there for a year, so he had nice things to say about it. He actually might have finished up if he hadn't decided to go into World War II. He enlisted um, after his sophomore sophomore year in college, which was in Haverford. And then after the war was over, he'd been away for so long, he didn't feel like going back to Philadelphia. He wanted to be around his family, so he finished at UC, uh, UCLA, uh, which is where he met my mother. Um, but, uh, you know, Haverford, I was in D.C. Haverford was about the right distance away. It was a really good school. Um, uh, it never occurred to me to like, go to school for broadcasting. Uh, and my parents, uh, my dad in particular, was very down on that. He wanted me to have a liberal arts degree of some kind. And then if you want to go into journalism, go ahead. But but he didn't believe in studying, you know, PR or getting a degree in radio or TV. Um, and he would have been very disappointed if I'd done that. Right. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So he he was uh, he was an influence there. But, you know, Haverford was like a terrific school. You know, it wasn't, too, it wasn't very big. It was pretty small when I went there. It's bigger now. Uh, now, of course, I sort of see what uh, Haverford's turned into. Like, I would have, I would have a prayer for getting in there now. Okay. It's yeah. just I mean, every it's school like, is like that yeah. now. You like, sit there. Like, well, the price, like my okay. college was Stockton in New Jersey. Yeah. The price for me was $32.50 a credit. Right. And someone posted on Facebook, like, to live there for a year. Like, right. living on campus was like $750. And now it's it's like... 20,000 a semester for us it was like 6,000 for everything for a year yeah I mean I would uh, first of all we would not be able to afford uh, me going to Haverford and today and second like my grades would not even get anything get me an interview uh, but fortunately uh, fortunately times were uh, times were different then. Right. so uh, so I did go there and um, um, and then when I, I, while I was there I started working for ABC News in the summer okay that was 40 years ago so summer of 75. So 39 years ago this year. And what were you doing for him? Oh, I was the, the bottom of the rung. I came in on the weekends and, you know, cut up the wire copy for him and made coffee and answered the phone and picked up Sam Donaldson's suit at the cleaners one day, which was a fun, <laughs> fun thing. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then that sort of after I did that for a couple of summers, and then after uh, graduation I went back to ABC News full time and, you know, by 1982, I was a correspondent there. Now, what's, I mean, it's just mostly cra uh, crazy with y the way your life is, like the time when you were going to come on before, but then you got called to a story in Tucson. Right. For, it seems like for your correspondents and the journalists, you, when, especially in the beginning, do you get like the, like the, like the last minute, like the worst places to go because you're oh, down yeah. below? I mean, when you're, when you're doing general assignment um, for the network, you are pretty much on call all the time except when you say to them like i'm getting married this weekend and even then they may call you and say okay but well, which day are you getting married okay. <laughs> uh because there's a thing in tucson that we need you to go do i mean the the uh, the amount of news that places that, that news organizations want to cover 
has only increased and the network staffs have decreased. So the result is everybody's pretty much maxed all the time. I mean, my friend Miguel Almaguer, who's a correspondent here in Burbank for NBC, I mean, he's basically like never here. He's on the road all the time, and he goes from you know he goes to the fires, and then he comes back, and you know then they send him to like a Santa Barbara type story, and you could be there for how how who knows how many days while that thing sort of plays itself out, and then that finishes, and they're like, okay, um, you know, there's a flood up outside of Seattle, go, and then right. you just go, and. You know, some people, some network correspondents work like like thirty, forty days in a row. See, that's that's insane. I mean, because but you're right, because there's always big stories. Right. Now, I mean, look, this is a great job, and we all grew up wanting to do this. So, I mean, like, I can't like really. I mean, I'm not. I'm not I don't. I don't mean to be sounding like I'm whining about it, because I mean, everybody who's doing it like really wants to do it. But I mean, like, somewhere in there, you know, your kid's gonna have a high school play, right. or you're gonna want to go to the dry cleaners. <laughs> yeah, and the worst is when you're stuck, as you said, you're stuck at something that might not be something a huge story, but then all of a sudden it goes from two to. 18 days and you can't get out. What were some of the, when you started out, what were some of the, like just stories you remember that you just were sitting there going, I know I had, I'm not paying my dues, but oh, man, this is, uh, why am I here? So, uh, so I, the, the, the difficulty would be coming up with only one of these. Uh, I was, um, uh, when I was at ABC News, um, I, they sent me to Nicaragua and uh, El Salvador, each of them for like months at a time. Uh, or at least at least a month, and then maybe you'd come back and then you'd go to the other place for a month, but you were only back for like a week or something. Um, because they were sure, uh, in the case of Nicaragua, they were sure that President Reagan was going to invade. And we knew that when, we, when there was a U.S. invasion, we would not be able to get people in. So we basically, they sent me and a producer and a camera crew and a videotape editor and editing equipment to Managua, Nicaragua, and we would, this was in 1983, and we would sit there for a month waiting for that invasion, which, I check your local papers, never came. Well, what would the day be like? Do you just sit in a hotel room or are you out coverage? Because, you know, the news well, is at six, but do you sit there and have to do prep in the day? Every or? once in a while, like, there'd be enough going on for us to, like, offer a story to the evening news or to the morning news. Generally, they didn't take it because to take it, they have to pay for it, and like they didn't want to pay for anything that wasn't pretty good. But every once in a while, we'd get on the air out of there. But that's like getting on the air, like you know, you'd have two one-day stories in thirty-five days, and the rest of the time, you get up in the morning, you read the local papers, you call the uh, the uh, the government press office, and you find out if there's anything going on today. You talk to people who you've who you've met. You chase down some rumors, you talk to some other reporters who are there, and then, like, basically you're just kind of waiting for the day to end because you're not getting it on the air, and it doesn't look like the, uh, you know, the U.S. 6th Fleet is, uh, you know, right. moved into position. So that's, I mean, I can just imagine the stuff you go through. So now you're, you're at ABC for how many years? Uh, I was at ABC for, I was, I was, I was there for, uh, I was there for, like, seven or eight years total. I was there for... Four years as a as a correspondent. So now, what made you move to NBC? Uh, I didn't move to NBC. I I got tired of uh, of spending weeks and weeks and weeks in places like Nicaragua and never getting on the air. And I left ABC and I went to uh, WCBS in New York City, uh, which was then a uh, top flight, sort of very kind of white collar network network owned station. Uh, and I uh, and I was a local reporter there for six years, which was probably like the smartest thing I ever did, which was get out of ABC and 
go to local news. So you're in New York City, which must be great. It was great. And so, and you're probably doing stories that are more... I was doing stories every day. I mean, I started off covering Long Island, and then the last four years I was there, I was the political reporter. You know, Ed Koch was the mayor. I was there the night he got defeated. I was there the night David Dinkins got elected as the city's first black mayor. Mario Cuomo was the governor. We had our history of arguing with each other. Andrew Cuomo, who's now the governor, who was then his dad's sort of hatchet man, used to call me up and yell at me when he didn't like the stories I'd done. Were they, were they I mean, in, in retrospect, were they hatchet stories, or were you saying, this is what I feel, or I mean... I mean the, and, Cuomos, the Cuomos have never liked stories that were anything other than sort of fulsomely praising them. Um, and I'm sure they're doing the same sort of massaging of the press now that they did then. Uh, they, I mean, when Mario Cuomo was governor... He spent probably 50 or 60 percent of his time sort of worrying about how he was coming across to the to the voters of the state. And so he spent a lot of time talking to the New York Times or yelling at the people from the New York Times or yelling at the guy from the New York Post with whom he had a long, fractious relationship. Or, you know, he'd have Andrew call and complain that I was being too mean to him on Channel 2. And, you know, these are the kind of things that go on. I mean, this is not unique to New York or unique to the Cuomos. All politicians, if they care about their future— and they are paying attention, they're going to spend some time sort of, you know, directly trying to contact and, you know, either intimidate or cajole. And, you know, it is a kind of a combination of, you know, pats on the back and blows to the head when politicians are talking to you. They're, they're trying to get the best press they can. You know, um, you know, President Johnson, this is nothing new. President Johnson, you know, is a famous conversation in which Dan Rather uh, was uh, when he was White House correspondent, I think, um, uh, long before sort of he gained fame. He was the new White House correspondent, and he finished his story on the Cronkite News, and he got off the air, and the story had run like a minute earlier, and his phone rang, and it was the president, and and the and and the president said, "Are you trying to f me, rather?" I've cleaned that up for you, <laughs> um, and. Rather like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, sir. Uh, you know, oh, I think this is in one of his books, and uh, you know, and so there's there's a lot of that that goes on when you are a reporter and you're covering politics. I mean, I heard more about my stories from City Hall from Ed Koch than I ever did from my news director. Okay. I mean, my news director didn't say to me every day, good story, bad story, I wish you'd done that. He hardly said anything, which generally meant you were fine, right, which is what most bosses do. Um, Koch, every day, would see me, and he would say, why didn't you use the part where I said? <laughs> and then he would repeat something he had said yesterday, and I would be like, that's great. It was a little too long. It's too long. I'll remember that. That's funny. Now, did you, did you ever get, like, bullied or threatened by anybody? No, I mean, uh, you know, I mean... Uh, uh, not in any way that made me think that there was any serious danger to me or anything like that. I mean, all these people, you know, Andrew Cuomo, uh, David Dinkins when he was mayor, Koch when he was mayor, Cuomo when he was governor, a couple other people. You know, they, they, you know, they call you up and yell at you, but like that, that's that, that goes with the territory. So you, you're doing this in New York City. And now when do you make your jump to NBC? Well, it was a tough decision because that was like, I mean, political reporter in New York City was probably the best job and I it's ever always, had. And it's always, I mean, 
That's the one thing, you know, with late night, you know, Letterman has always made fun of the mayors. Everyone, it's such a concentrated thing where the mayors are celebrities in that town, city, more than anywhere. It's one of the few places where, you know, I mean, in the United States, you know, we cover the president because covering the president is kind of a way to cover the government by only covering one guy. I mean, you can cover sort of everything that's important in Washington by, like, following Obama around or whoever the president is at that time. I mean, everything sort of goes through that person, that office. That's also true of New York City. You can sort of cover the city by being at City Hall. And and it, it, because they have this very strong form, strong mayor form of government. You know, it's not like here in Los Angeles where the mayor has way less authority and, you know, all these boards and commissions sort of determine, you know, water rates and trash pickup and who's going to be police chief. You know, and the mayor in New York, like that's, that's all up to the mayor. Uh, and the city council in New York only recently, only in the last few years, has had, since they changed the charter uh, about 20 years ago, um, only then have they... Um, have they sort of had any real stamp uh, of, of approval on things that happened or didn't happen? So covering the mayor was really like, you know, it was just adrenaline fueling in New York because you saw all this stuff happening. Uh, and Ed Koch, you know, uh, understood local politics and he understood uh, the news media and particularly television better than any other politician I've ever met. Well, it's amazing about Koch because you think back, he was a mayor who hosted Saturday Night Live. I mean, that you never hear that now. I mean, no way would anyone even do that because then Koch was, you know, I mean, us living in near the Philadelphia area, everyone everyone knew who Ed Koch was. Right. And it was crazy. So so you, you were loving this job, but you were... I loved it. And I, uh, I, I, I was not loving living in New York City, in which my apartment was about the size of the studio we're in now. Okay. Um, and weirdly, it had the same sound baffling. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, I got an offer to come to a station in Los Angeles and be the political reporter there. It was KCAL, which was just starting. It was going to be this brand new sort of uh, new idea of uh, television. They were going to do three hours of local news every night. I thought, well, it could be kind of fun. And I really missed L.A. I, 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 I'd, I'd spent my childhood here. I had a lot of family still here. And, like, who doesn't like Los Angeles? Right. You know? I mean, it's, it's I mean, so funny who, you say that. The who, weather. It's like you sit yeah. there, especially the weather they have back east. You know, you feel bad. Like, my, my I, I see it on Facebook, people, like, showing their backyards, and it's, like, eight feet of snow. And I'm like, huh. then move, man. Well, say, you're you know, in a T-shirt. Get, yeah. And the, and the like, window's I mean, open. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, and, you know. And you're right. Plus, if you grew up here, because yeah. when you move out here for the first time, it's sort of it's sort of a little scary because you don't know the area but if you grew up here and you had family out here it's like well of course it's like i would love to go back there no that was the great thing was i already sort of knew my way around out here and i kind of knew a little bit about the city's political history so i did that and i was political reporter at kcal for a couple of years and then there was this explosion of news magazine shows and so um so i went to a show on fox it was called front page now do they pursue you or does your agent tell you about it or how no, they, they find pursue, out they they, I knew them, and they just pursued me. They, they called me and offered me a job. And, you know, um, Fox then was did not have the Fox News channels, which is the Fox Network. And so we were on there for about a year. But basically, like, they didn't quite know what to do with us. And they didn't want to put us on during the week because they, they didn't understand about, you know, sort of where news magazines need to be. So ultimately that didn't work. Uh, and I left there and, I, and I'd gotten an offer from Dateline. I actually turned down Dateline to go to Fox. And that turned out to be a good idea because by the time I got, by the time that show ended, I was, the Dateline was still hiring and I was kind of ready to go. 
So, so I've been at Dateline since 1995, which is nearly 20 years. Now, when did that show start, Dateline? Dateline started like I think I think it started two years, either two years or three years before I was there. I think it started in '92. Okay. No, because it's just amazing. You're right. Yeah. That show has been on forever. I mean, yeah. you think about it. You know, back to '95, and you just think how much it's grown, and, and it's like, and sometimes it's on three times a week. Sometimes it's on. Oh yeah, no, we've always expanded and contracted, sort of, to fill the needs of the entertainment schedule. And I, you know, I mean, I once again, I mean, they're they're doing it again. We were, you know, we were on Fridays for an hour and Sundays for an hour, and then all of a sudden they said uh, to us. Uh, month or two ago uh, they said okay we're gonna take off sundays you're not gonna be on sundays anymore something else is gonna go in there you're gonna be two hours on fridays so if you can do two hour mysteries that would be great and you're gonna have um repeats on saturday so we do a two-hour repeat on saturday oh wow. believe me i know they're de- my girlfriend dvrs all of them i Our- just i look at the brick and i go okay okay datelines on i know that we can only dvr one other show at that time we had a uh we had a staff meeting this morning, coincidentally, and our boss told us that uh, the the Saturday block, which again is like rerun shows, right. is doing so well that it's beating first run stuff on all the other networks because there's a big audience out there that's home and that wants something interesting to look at, and and if they haven't seen that Dateline, it's just great. I mean, we're beating we're beating first run forty eight hours, right? That's just I mean that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and it is. I think a lot of times when it's a two hour block. Some people get a little intimidated, but not with you because people are watching it. But when you sit there and go, two hour, you see two hours, like, oh, well, maybe I'll watch an hour, you know, but it's just amazing. We got a good way of, uh, of sucking you in, making you stick around, as your girlfriend, I'm sure, would. Uh, oh, she, I mean, yeah, would, she's, would yeah. she's an addict. I mean, she's like yeah. every time. And even like, she'll sit there and go, I think I saw this one, but then she may have seen it, but then she'll forget it. Right. And then she'll watch it. And then like 45 minutes through, she well, goes, you know, oh, I've seen this. Well, the trick to Dateline is that, you know, first of all, these are all you know, on some level, terribly serious and terribly sad stories. Uh, The audience likes to see an ending. Uh, One of the things we learned by participating in social media on on Facebook and on Twitter is that audiences don't like unsolved cases. So although we really wanted to do unsolved cases because it opens up this huge universe of stuff you can do, um, and actually does some good because it, sometimes it shakes stuff loose yeah, for police. Sometimes it helps people and just people recognize something. The audience hated that. They they don't they like you know they like it when at the end of the hour or the end of the two hours we say or Lester Holt says you know Bill was convicted he got life good night right as opposed to and who did it we don't know there's a murderer out there police need your help good night lock your doors you know so. Uh, you know, I understand that. I, I'm sorry that people don't don't didn't react better to cold cases, but they don't. People like stories that have been done, uh, in which there's an ending. So, you know, we very, I mean, we've been we've been doing. You know, Dateline changed a lot. I mean, Dateline was kind of a, um, a smorgasbord of stuff, almost like 60 Minutes. I mean, you never knew it was going to be on. Now you kind of do. You kind of know what we're doing. Um, and we do a ton of true crime. And sometimes, you know, I mean, as as Dennis Murphy, one of our correspondents, memorably said in a story, um, it's not the murder, it's the marriage. So, you know, what, what, what cops end up looking at and what, what audiences end up focusing on is not the details of how a person was killed, but the details of the relationship that got everybody to that point. Well, and that, I think, is why... 
people find this so interesting because it is about ultimately about relationships. Well, it's amazing as I always sit there and go, man, if, if I said, if, if you're, if you're thinking of killing someone, watch, watch those shows. Cause then you know, not what to do. It's like some of these people make mistakes that you sit there and go, first of all, the, the husbands are one who would do it. Or they're always so just these sociopaths, like these narcissists who just think they can get away with anything. It's astonishing. You know, I, I, I mean, I actually said this to one guy who was who was uh, um, accused of trying to kill his wife. Uh, look, just you know, just get divorced. You know, money—it's just not worth it. I mean, I mean, first of all, I can't conceive of like wanting to kill somebody right. that you had once loved, particularly somebody who, in many of these cases, is like the mother or father of your. It children. always seems like yeah, it's a mother, and right? it's like wow. I mean, if it's if it's. I mean, if it's if it's your other spouse and you have children, then you just—I mean—the the idea that you would not think of your kids in that situation, even if you have nothing but hatred for the other person, the kids don't probably, and so that that I just find impossible to understand. But secondly, you know, I mean, one of the things that's pointed up by Dateline again and again and again, as you say, is that you know, committing murder and getting away with it's a lot harder than people think. Yeah, lying's harder than people think. Uh, committing any crime and not leaving some trace of yourself behind is harder than people think. Lying and sticking to it is harder than people think. And the cops, by the way, are not as stupid as they appear on hour-long TV shows. Right. They're actually pretty <laughs> smart in most cases. So, so okay, so when you started with Dateline, what were some of the stories back in 95? What were some of the stories then? Uh, what was I doing back in 95? Well, the OJ trial was on. Uh, which coincidentally is now about to hit its 20-year anniversary, and we're doing a 20-year look back on that that's going to run on June the 13th. Okay, that's what's amazing is um, I've become friendly with Cato Kalin. He's been on the show a few times, and, right. and he's, we were talking one night, and he's like, no, like kids now, they don't know who he is. Like, right. like every Back then, we had said, because that was the first reality TV. It was. Because that was on every day, and people got into it, and it would be, some of these scenes would just be boring. Well, we were, we, I was working on this 20-year uh, OJ retrospective, uh, which which we're still working on, actually. I'm going to walk out of this studio and go back to work on it. Um, the Bronco Chase uh, was watched by an estimated 95 million Americans. That was in 1994. The Super Bowl that year was between the uh, Cowboys and the Bills. It was watched by 90 million Americans. Right. Now, I mean, so that was that was the first reality show, and that changed everything. I mean, that changed the news business, that changed the TV business, that changed the legal system, that changed journalism, and that's had a. I mean, the, the OJ case has had a ripple effect that is still being felt. There wouldn't be a TMZ without the OJ case. There wouldn't be Dateline in its current form. I don't think without the OJ case. All, all the stuff like like Court TV. You know, or whatever it's become now, True TV or In Session, all of that is you can draw a straight line like with a ruler right back to the OJ case. When you were covering it, did you feel that you were in the beginning of a change of the no. business? Did no. you, or it was just covering? You didn't think no. it would have this? No, it effect? was just this astonishing spectacle that had like that was like feeding on itself and it was like out of control, like a tornado moving across the landscape of our culture. I mean, it was, it was this collision of popular culture and legal drama and celebrity and all these issues which 20 years later we still have trouble talking about. Race, power, celebrity, money, intermarriage, domestic violence. Uh, I mean, like, we're, on a lot of that, we're not any closer to being more right. comfortable with talking about it now than we were 20 years ago. So you're doing that. Now, I read something about it. You've had a big story for Atkins. 
Yes, that was one of the things I did back then, which was in 98. Now, how did you come about doing that story? My dad had been, and my mom had been on the Atkins diet back in the 70s. I remembered it when they were on it. And, uh, uh, and I ran into a friend of mine in San Francisco, um, who, um, a woman who I had known who had dated a, a buddy of mine, and I barely recognized her because she lost so much weight. And she was like, oh, yeah, I did the Atkins diet. It was great. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, like, that's good. like everybody's talking about it. I should, I should one do it, just to see what happens. So I went out that day in San Francisco went to a bookstore and I bought the uh, the Atkins Diet Revolution, and I did it myself. And in like like three months, I lost like thirty four pounds. What right? is it? Is it powders? Is it food? No, I mean, what, no, it's just Atkins. You know, Atkins gets kind of a bad rap. Um, Atkins is really not about what you're eating. Atkins is about what you're avoiding. Atkins is on the Atkins diet. You don't eat white carbohydrates, so you're not having any bread. You're not having any pasta. You're not having any potatoes. Uh, you're not having any sugar. Can you have? You can have even wheat versions of that, or no? You could. There are some forms of bread and products like that that are that are low enough in carbohydrates that you can have a little bit of it. But basically, you want to keep your carbohydrates down to like 20 grams a day. Um, the whole vegetable kingdom, pretty much, with the exception of incredibly sweet things like corn and Vidalia onions, is open to you. Uh, and pretty much all protein is open to you from like, you know, cheese, chicken, fish, steak, tofu, you know. Um... You could, uh, you know, you can't have dessert, you know, and you um, uh, and you can't have potatoes. But I discovered that, like, any dinner where I could have a steak and a green vegetable uh, and a salad and a cup of coffee, like, I was okay. Right. I was okay. I could live. I could live like that for a long time, and I lost. I lost fifty-seven pounds totally. Now, did no, you? Forty-seven. I lost forty-seven pounds. Did you? Great. Did they track? Did you track the story week by week, or you just? No, I didn't actually do the story until I until like 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 several months after it was over, okay. and everybody was talking to me about my weight and about this diet. And you know, back then there was a whole range of people who sort of lined up against the Atkins diet and talked about how it was going to cause widespread kidney disease. Well, you know, now it's been, what, how many years since 1998? Right. That didn't happen. Um, there's no reason not to do it. Um, the only reason not to do it is you can't eat, um, you don't want to eat all that protein, or you're addicted to eating potatoes, or, you know, there's other diets out there if that's what you want. And that, but, that one, the uh, the caveman diet, whatever that's called. Uh, well, the paleo diet. Yeah, no, that's, See, that's, the paleo diet, not that far from... Right, that's what I was thinking. So, they sound it, very, very similar. They're not, they're not that far apart. And I interviewed Mark Sisson, who's the, who's the, the uh, uh, more recently for a, a story about the paleo diet. And he's, you know, he's he looks like he's made of iron. You know, he like barely works out. He does a lot of fun things like, you know, sailboard and, you know, run along the beach and things. But he's not like some guy who's in a gym all day long. And he's terrific. And he looks great. And he's very happy. And he thinks, you know, he thinks gluten is poison. Um, he does make an interesting point, which is that when you when you see these carbohydrates in their base form, you know, bread, potatoes, uh, you know, noodles, like nobody wants to eat them like that. Right. You have to put something on them to make them attractive. 
Right? I mean, who eats a baked potato with nothing on it? Exactly. Yeah. People, I had a friend who said, you know, eat a dry potato. I'm like, man, that's who, just no, a nobody, waste. Nobody, who eats a bowl of noodles with right. nothing on them? Like, <laughs> you put meat sauce on them or something. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, he's, his point is, like, these things actually are very unappetizing. Your body's trying to tell you something. You now, know, it, so just have the marinara sauce, exactly. he says. Yeah. Now, when you lost the weight, because I, I had a health problem a few years ago, two years ago, and I got out of the hospital, I lost, like, 25 pounds. And everyone kept saying... You know, they, I had a heart problem. They knew that, but, but people didn't know that. They're like, oh, my God, is he sick? What, is he on drugs? Or, you know, it's like, right. do, do people just, they have a different reaction if they don't know, especially because you're on TV, people must have been like, wait a second, I wonder what's, and especially now if there was all, like, the social media, everybody yeah, like, I wonder what's wrong with Josh. You know, he must be oh, sick. Oh, right. No, that's, yeah. Well, um, um, you know, if you look up my name on uh, Google, it says, like, Josh Mank, you know, you put just put Josh Mankowitz in, and then you know Google gives you a bunch of suggestions, right? And one of them is Josh Mankowitz bio, Josh Mankowitz married. One of them is Josh Mankowitz stroke. And I'm like, I'm like, where'd that come from? I love that. It's, I almost click on that. I love what, that. What does it say? I don't know, you know, and it's like, there's like one person who said, you know, did Josh Mankowitz have a stroke? Like, that pops up. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny. Like they asked that on on Twitter or on Facebook or something, you know. Uh, some guy wrote uh, wrote uh, wrote to me, which I got on Twitter, saying, "Why does it look like you always had a stroke?" And I wrote back, "Because it's a stroke of luck that I'm not even working." <laughs> and my brother wrote as a response, he goes, no, "I think you got it wrong." I said, "Why does Josh Mangles always look like he just had a steak?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, do you get a lot of mail or uh, fan mail or tweets at you, or I mean, do people? Oh yeah, I get a lot of stuff. I don't get a lot of fan mail. I get almost no actual mail with letters on it. I mean, but e- emails or on it. But I get like I get some emails. I get a lot of contact on uh, on uh, Twitter and some on Facebook on the Dateline page, uh, and it's great. I mean, we you know we we sort of got it very big into social media back in 2009, I would say, and uh, you know we just passed a uh, we're the only news magazine with a million followers on Facebook. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is yeah, it's that's phenomenal. Amazing. I mean, yeah. that's, that's like um, that's like rock band numbers. I mean, that's we like, have you know. a, we're actually gonna we're, we have this contest called One in a Million, in which we're gonna pick somebody and bring them to New York. Some fan, some random fan. We have some people writing in with with suggestions. So I, you know, it's it's great. You know, you know, you know as well as I do. I mean, the 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 contact between you and the audience, you the broadcaster and the audience, that all used to be one way, which is you do the stories and they either watched or they didn't watch. And if they didn't watch, you would assume they didn't like it. And if you got a big number, then you would assume they did like it. And that's pretty much you were able to sort of make that guess. Beyond that, like you couldn't really tell anything. Now, of course, with Twitter and social media, people can tell you whether they liked it or not, what they liked specifically, and you have this whole better idea of sort of understanding your audience that you didn't have before. It's like this live focus group. And I've told like business groups that when people are trying to, you know, people ask me, you know, should I, should I be getting into Twitter? And the answer is, yeah, everybody should. Yeah, I think Twitter is very important, and it's so funny. And social media is so much. I mean, I get a lot of my guests through social media. If I tweet to them, if I do that. Because before, I, this show wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago because I wouldn't know how to get in touch with these actors and, you know, writers and all that stuff. Um, do you ever get mean tweets? Because sometimes, have you ever watched, do you ever watch Jimmy Kimmel? Oh, it's the funniest thing. I, I, just saw, I just saw the most recent one. It's so funny. And I've seen a couple of the earlier ones in which he has celebrities read, read mean tweets. And, and first of all, they're hilarious. Um, one of the things I discovered 
even back before social media came in, is that people who write, whether even if they write a handwritten note or if it's a you know, an email or a tweet or a Facebook posting to the show. Like, they never assume that the actual person is going to read it. Right. Uh, And there's a lot of people who write to me and say things like, you know, I know this is your assistant answering, but I'd just like to ask you, Josh, I'm like, is that my assistant? Right. Is that? No, my assistant (laughs) wouldn't do that. I could beg her to do that. She wouldn't do it. Um, uh, You know, uh, yeah, sometimes I get mean stuff, um, but not... Not mean like those celebrities. I mean, it's, uh, it's every, funny. Now, every now and then, but it's it's pretty rare. I think you no, know, that celebrity thing. Now, I think people are doing it now just to try to get on there because in, I mean, that, no, that's possible. No, I, didn't even, I didn't even think about that. No normal person is is going to be like, I'll joke, I'll because I do comedy every once in a while. I'll, I'll joke about someone you know or this, but no one can be like. I mean, some of those are just you mean. Know, I mean, just uh, mean. I wish I could say that I, that people are doing that because they want to get on Jimmy Kimmel, which actually makes sense on some level. But I, you know, Aaron Sorkin had a great quote, which I've quoted a bunch of times, which is that you know, nothing has made us meaner or dumber as a culture than the anonymity that comes with using the Internet. People, you know, it's a level playing field for the first time in social media. You know, if you used to be, you, you know, you or I, you know, if we were kids and we sent a letter to... You know, our favorite movie star, we don't know whether that person was reading it or right. not, right? Or if it got opened and a letter sent back, you don't know if it was that person or somebody from the studio or the guy even even saw your letter. You don't know, right? But now you can be reasonably sure that if you write to at Julia Roberts, you know, and whatever they said to her, like her mouth looks like it could swallow an elephant or mm-hmm. something. And that was actually one of, as I remember that, that was actually one of the more pleasant things that were right. tweeted oh, yeah. to some of these people. The best was um, Emma Stone. She looks of, like she smells like cat pee. Yeah, but some it's of them like, were just, you know, like, like, yeah, like really re- reprehensible. Um, you know, if you want to send something like really vitriolic to a celebrity, there's actually a fairly good chance that they're going to read it. And that empowers people, people who feel like, you know, there is no other outlet for the sort of, you know, vitriol that is going through their veins. So, I mean, I wish I believed that people were doing it just to get on Jimmy. I don't think, but I, I think some people some are just people mean. Are just, they're, they're, just, they're just inherently mean, and they think that somehow making a celebrity feel bad is worth their time. Now, three... But I will say that I do not get anything like that. Good, good. You shouldn't because you're a nice guy. Uh, during your career, is there any stories that you went in and you're just like, oh, God, this is just really disturbing or just something that you were sitting there and oh, not biased yeah. about, but just sitting there going, oh, or interviewing someone like, like just see some of these people, these gentlemen come on. Have you ever just sat there and thinking in your head, just what a piece of Oh yeah, no. There's a oh, there's a, I mean, there's a story that that, um, that happened in Orange County a few years ago. There was a uh, a guy who wanted to steal this ocean-going yacht from these people. There was a husband and wife that owned it, and they were selling it because they wanted to move back to Arizona and be near their new grandchild. And so they were they they had this retirement yacht, and they sailed up and down the Sea of Cortez and Baja on the coast of California. But now they were getting ready to pack it in and move back to. Uh, somewhere in, uh, outside Phoenix, I think, um, or Havasu, that's where it was, um, uh, to um, be near their, their family. So they put this yacht up for sale, and this guy thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to get this boat and run drugs on it. So he pretended that he was going out for a test cruise with these people because they wanted to sell a boat, and he brought some friend of his along who was actually some gang member he'd recruited for the purpose. And at some point in the ocean, they like overtook this this retired couple, and uh, tied them up, and then threw them overboard while they were attached to the anchor. Um, and they were still conscious, uh, and so these people 
presumably drowned in a pretty horrible way. And the guy, of course, you know, was this like like this little twerp of a guy, and um, and his lawyer let him be interviewed um, uh, with the hope of he'd already been he's clearly going to be convicted of, of murder. Uh, the hope was that they'd be able to keep him off of uh, death row. So he gave us this interview, which we did in the Orange County lockup. And, I mean, the uh, he was shackled in front of me. And he's also probably, he was like this little diminutive guy. He's like one of the few murderers that I've sat across from that I probably actually could have taken in a okay. fight. Um, but uh, he was so disgusting and reprehensible and loathsome that I I, 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 like, I was like leaning back in my chair. He was like, I, I didn't want to breathe the air he was breathing. Um, and he couldn't apologize. He couldn't even find it in him. So he said, well, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm very sorry about it. I'm like, you're what? You're sorry about what? And he's like, well, the whole thing. I'm like, the thing, the double murder. Right. He's like, yeah, well, I'm sorry they're dead. I'm like, they're not dead. They're more, you killed them. That's right. why they're dead. They're not just... They didn't just they die. It was a natural yeah. cause. Yeah, like, you know, there wasn't a storm. They didn't yeah. get washed to sea. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he couldn't even, like, bring himself to say it, which only made me um, angrier. So that interview ended with me. Um, I was definitely sort of tougher on it than maybe some other people were. And... Um, and you know, I mean, it, it certainly. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't apologize for that. But it was definitely um, an instance in which you know, sometimes, sometimes they, look, these are horrible things right. that we do stories about. You know, and you have to sort of strike a balance between, you know, turning off any sort of human portion of yourself, which I don't want to do, which I'm not going to do. And you also don't want to be like, you know, weeping along with these people that you're interviewing because then you're not going to get your job done. And your your job, you know, ultimately is to tell their story and not empathize with them. But, you know, you have to come down somewhere in between. I mean, if you don't feel anything when you're talking to these people who have suffered such a horrible loss, you know, then you probably shouldn't be in journalism anymore. You'll be, you know, you'll just end up being, you know, somebody like, you know, like Steve Dunleavy or, you know, one of these guys who just, you know, you know, does it for the thrill of uh, of the chase. Have you ever interviewed someone who is convicted and you've, from their story and from their interview, you've inside your head said, I really think this guy's innocent? Uh, uh, Doug Grant was a uh, vitamin salesman and a big um, nutritionist in, um, in the Phoenix area. Um, his wife clearly had some kind of mental illness. She had some kind of bipolar disease. Something was going on with her. Um, She wrote in her journal a number of times she foretold her own death. And she talked about how she knew she was going to die and she knew she was going to die young. And she she said, you know, I know there's everybody involved in this story was a Mormon. Uh, And she believed that there was a baby waiting in the celestial kingdom for Doug and his new wife, and she even specified who the new wife was, and it was a woman that, that Doug had, uh, had had an affair with. So Doug, clearly not the greatest husband or guy who ever came down the pike, but when his wife died in the bathtub after taking a bunch of drugs while he was sleeping, um, uh, he was charged with murder. And I have to say that I personally could not have voted 
to convict him of murder because his wife's his wife's writings, which we had, which we his wife's diary, basically her journals, made it abundantly clear that she was planning on dying. That, to me, would have been more than reasonable doubt. Now, did Doug act strangely in some other ways? He did. And then he married this other woman right afterward. Right. And she was younger, and that didn't look good. But, uh, you know, trials are not supposed to be about whether a guy is a good guy or not. They're supposed to be trials. They're supposed to be about whether or not you actually committed the offense. And he was convicted. I, I must say, uh, I would not have been voting with the majority in that one. Okay. I was going to ask you earlier, you said something about James Mason. Yeah, James Mason. Oh, so, so this is a childhood memory of mine. Um, James Mason's uh, James Mason had a son um, uh, named Morgan, uh, who's about my age. Um, I haven't seen him in like fifty years or talked to him. He later ended up uh, marrying Belinda Carlisle of the Go Go's. Okay, I think they're still he's a married. politician. I think, and yeah, and he went to work for. Uh, he was a Republican, and I know he became, at one point, he was uh, chief of protocol in the Reagan White House. I don't quite know what he's done since then. I sort of get the feeling he's back in the entertainment business. And I think he and Belinda Carlisle are still married. I'm not 100% sure about that. But this is when Morgan and I were kids. He, he and I are about the same age. And Morgan liked his birthday parties, and his dad was a movie star. So Morgan had four birthday parties a year, um, one every three months. Um, these were Hollywood birthday parties. The uh, the kind of which like uh, like exists you know primarily like you know in articles in Vanity Fair. Right. Um, I remember tuxedo clad waiters serving chocolate milk off silver trays. Oh, there, I remember we all went into a screening room and watched a the animated uh, Snow White. Which I mean, back then in like 1960, when you're a kid, like to be in a screening room was like like a yeah, of, It's like in, yeah, yeah. If I think, wait yeah, a second, like this someone's house. It's you know, um, and. Uh, uh, and at one point, um, at one of these birthday parties, you got to remember there were a lot of them. Um, at one point, um, at one of Morgan's birthday parties, um, an older, a bigger boy shoved me, I was pretty small, shoved me into the cake, um, and, uh, uh, and ruined the cake and made me cry. And, uh, cause I was, I don't know, like five then. And, um. Uh, and my mom, after you know wiping all the icing and everything off me, uh, she was uh, she was very angry at Kirk Douglas because it was his son that he hadn't controlled. Michael. So so for like so for about forty years, I carried around this grudge against Michael Douglas for shoving me into the cake at Morgan Mason's birthday party. Um, uh, one day. Michael Douglas, I was on some late night talk show and I was glaring at him through the TV, right, thinking like, someday I'm going to shove you into a cake, pal, right? Never met him, of course, since then. Um, uh, and he was talking about his family and he was talking about growing up in L.A. And something he said made me realize that I was doing the math wrong. So I looked up how old he was. He's too old. It couldn't have been him. It was his brother, the one who got in so much trouble, and I think is no longer alive, Eric Douglas. Okay. So, Michael Douglas, if you're listening, I hated you for 40 years, and it wasn't you, and I'm sorry. DC, those are the stories that are just great. We have about nine minutes left. Um, what are some of your favorite stories you've done in, the, in, in your whole career? Uh, covering politics in New York City and New York State was fabulous. Um, it was so much fun, and it was, it was really hard. Um, 
and it was very challenging and it was great. Working at Dateline, I mean, this is really kind of a dream come true. There isn't any, I don't think there's a TV reporter in the country that at some point doesn't think, gee, I'd like to work for a magazine show and just do long form stuff. Um, I'm working on a story right now that's going to air in the next, well, over the summer. I don't know when exactly, but it's going to air in the next couple of months about some people in New York City, six of them, who were wrongly convicted of a couple of murders back in the 90s. Now, this was back when Rudy Giuliani and Bill Bratton were trying to clean up New York. And um, the question is, is going to be out there whether this was how they did it, because the charges that were leveled against these guys were not supported basically by any reasonable evidence. It's hard to believe any DA today would file on the charges that the, that the police came up with then, but they did, and six people went to jail, and they all lost 17 or 18 years of their lives. And then it turned out, of course, that, that long before, I mean, years earlier, somebody else had, had, uh, had um, confessed to that crime, and, it, and they, they clearly had done it. They were members of a gang in that area. And these other guys who had all been saying, I had nothing to do with it, and nobody listened to them, and they all had public defenders, um, they were all set free, and now they all have lawsuits pending against the city. But you're never going to get that time back. Um, and that's a fascinating story, and it's an example of you know, something that we learned in the OJ trial, which is that the big dividing line in the criminal justice system isn't race, it's money. Right, and that's very true. Um, now, how do you find out what stories you get? Do you get to pick, or do they say, "Okay, Josh, you have this, Keith, you have that"? Or how do they? Sometimes, when something interesting happens, you know, I'll call them and say, "I want to do that." Um, uh, they pitch me stuff from New York all the time. They pitch you way more stuff than you can do. I mean, they don't just pitch you. You know, they don't stop pitching when you're full. So a lot of times. Uh, somebody will come to me and say, oh, there's this great story, you know, in Philadelphia next week, and it involves, you know, this and that. I think that's great, and I'd love to go back to Philadelphia, but I'm booked for like the next three weeks, so I can't do it. So you can't say yes to everything. You also, of course, can't say no to everything, or you'll make their lives difficult. And then we also pitch them stuff, and sometimes they say yes. What's the process for Dateline? You get the story, and then you go cover it. What's, I mean, from when you get the story idea to, to when it airs, what's well, the it, it can be anywhere from like a couple of weeks or a few days to, you know, a year or more. We're frequently sort of uh, prisoners of the criminal justice system in that most DAs, most cops, most attorneys, certainly almost all defendants, won't talk to you until the case has been adjudicated. So, and you want it to be adjudicated because, as I said, the audience wants to hear what the answer was. They want to hear whether the person got convicted or not. And you need that 911 tape. You need those crime scene photos. You need that piece of evidence that was introduced. And nobody's going to give that to you until that all sort of becomes public record at the end of a trial. So we have to wait for trials to be over. And if a attorney, you know, has a baby or has a heart attack or, you know, breaks their leg in a skiing accident, all of a sudden the trial gets moved back four months, and our air date gets moved back four months, there's nothing we can do about that. Uh, a lot of times when we interview people before verdict, just so that when the verdict happens, we can sort of quickly scoop everything up and then go on the air faster, we've made deals with people, we will not air this until there's a verdict. So, you know, and then there's a mistrial. Okay, then we can't air it, because right. we okay. promised you we weren't going to air it, so we don't. But we, you know, then we got to go back and do it again. So that's one of the things that happens. So it can it can it can be anything from a month or two to a year or more. 
So do you know your story is coming up now for the next few weeks? Or I know sure? like the next. I know the next few. I mean, I'm working on this two-hour OJ story. I'm working on another two-hour story here in uh, Los Angeles, in which several family members were were a suspect, were sus, were themselves suspects in the death of another member of the family. Um, and I'm working on this um, this story in uh, in New York. Now, do you have to do a lot of research? I, fortunately, we have people who pretty much do all the basic research for me, and they will then present me with a big pile of research, which I then have to read. But fortunately, I don't have to you know, go on the Internet and do all those searches. We it, have people who do that for me. It must be amazing for, uh, for you seeing the change from Internet to back in the day. Like We were talking oh, about how term papers was like, oh, you, you have to go you to the imagine? library. It's like now you just copy and kids, of course kids are plagiarized, and they can copy and paste everything. I can't imagine how much easier it would be to write a term paper now than it was when I was in high school and college. But I can't imagine how much easier it is to be a high school or college student. I mean, smartphones? Like, I couldn't talk to any girl in yeah. high school. Like, I couldn't get the words, right? But I could have texted. I would have been good at that. It's amazing. It's also yeah. just like, I looked at my old school, which is small. Like, they have Dunkin' Donuts in the student center, the restaurant like this. We had the meal plan that you'd yeah. go and you'd sit there on, on brunch. We would sit there with backpacks and take the lunch meat and the bread out. So, yeah. like, later before dinner or later at night, we could actually eat. We couldn't just sit there and go, oh, hey, let's go to, you know, my, my uh, girlfriend's niece goes to Monmouth. It's like they have a... Jersey Mike's, they have this, they have this. And then the kids bitch if something closes. It's like, you can get food. You have, like, it's amazing. I know. It's a different world. Well, I want to thank. We just have a few minutes left. Uh, Those kids, they have it easy today. I, isn't that sad? Isn't yeah. that sad we start saying that? I it's know. like, oh, my God. Just like my dad. So were you a Philadelphia sports fan at all when you lived back there? No, I was uh, I was an L.A. Rams fan back then. Of course, there are no more L.A. Rams. Um, and uh, But it was impossible to not be. I mean, I remember... You know, being in Philadelphia when the Flyers won their first right. championship, and people were like in the streets. It was great, um, driving around, honking their horns. Um, uh, and I think the Phillies were great when I was there, but the uh, but the Sixers were. You know, I was there when Julius Irving came to right. Philadelphia. That was I remember uh, that first McGinnis and then Irving. It was great. I was the, I was I remember watching the eleven o'clock news on the night of Irving's first night in Philadelphia. And like the whole city was watching, it was great. Yeah, because everyone incredible. was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. I, I still remember we used to go to McDonald's and they had the uh, when you get a burger, they had the pop ups of the players, mm. and it was like McGinnis, and it was then I think Dawkins was on the team, and they were great teams. And Philadelphia, you know, growing up there, it was such yeah. we, were, we were always so just depressed because we stunk, and then finally when the Flyers won the Stanley Cup, everyone went right. nuts. So, so okay, so what? Where can people get in touch with you? What's your uh, Twitter and all that uh, stuff? On uh, the, the on, on Facebook, I'm just just my name, Josh Mankiewicz. And on Twitter, it's at Josh Mankiewicz. No space between Josh and Mankiewicz. And then there's also the, uh, the. Um, there's also the Dateline NBC on um, Facebook Facebook page, which is a good way to write to us. And today, but if you want, but if you want to write to me and you want me to write back to you, go to Twitter, and write to me, and I'll probably answer you. I got a question. Does does Lester Holt always work? I, I always that guy's well, he's always like, he's, he's like, everything. He's incredibly hardworking. I worked with him at Channel Two in New York. Uh, he's always been incredibly hardworking because you know he not only does Dayline, but he anchors the Weekend Today right. Show. He fills in for Brian. He fills in the Today Show during the week, and he's always like the first guy out the door when there's a hurricane. Right. I know it's just crazy. He works. And uh, real quick, uh, 
Do you think the a lot of people are going to watch the Snowden part, uh, story? Oh yeah, no, no, I think people want to hear what he has to say. That was kept very hush hush, and then then yeah. it was like because everyone was wondering where Brian Williams was, and then boom, and that's great that you guys got it. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to see it. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Josh. Thank and, uh, you. So contact them, people. Also, people, send me an email, Cooper at Indy100.com. Uh, tell me what you what guests you want to get. I'll try to get them. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Also, if you want to listen to this show, I have about two hundred and close to 260 episodes up on uh, coopertalk.net or you can also go to iTunes or Stitcher and type in coopertalk one word I don't know why that's a search and find that or from your smartphone I have the new uh, coopertalk app for your uh, Android devices just go to the Google Play Store type in coopertalk that's what you gotta do and also don't forget this Thursday night at Bob's Espresso right there on 5521 Lancashire in North Hollywood it's owned by uh, Robert Romanus who was uh, demoned from Fast Times at Ridgemont High I will be doing Cooper Talk Live my guest will be John Capelos who you know is the janitor in Breakfast Club he's been in Miami Vice he's been in Psych he's been in Justified we're gonna have an hour interview just like the show and he's been a guest before he's a great guy then we're gonna have a little song by him he has a new CD coming out called uh, Two Hit for the Room he's gonna play a song possibly Possibly. Then we're going to do some Q&A, and it's free. It starts at 7. We'll probably start getting it at 7.15. So please come out. It's going to be a great night. It may be the first of uh, twice a month of them. So check it out. So, yeah, don't forget to email me, cooper at indy100.com, Twitter at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. And stay healthy. Remember, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back next week with more great guests.